My name is Lyndon. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's an honor to be able to speak this morning. I want to also say a special hello to those that are watching in Nickel Hall. We love you, and we pray for you, and we're thankful for you. I'm an orphan. What a great way to start a sermon. At least that's what the book tells me. Well, you're thinking, okay, well, we're in church. What book? Must be the Bible. Nope. The book that I'm thinking of isn't quite that old. It's about 40, 45 years ago. It takes place in the Edmonton. And on the back of the book, it says this. Marianne was an up-and-coming real estate agent, pert and pretty. Mr. Cooper was a shadowy figure who wished to be a who wished to buy a lonely property. He was careful never to be seen by anyone else from the real estate office. Then there was an abduction, violence and murder. The clues led nowhere, and the winter snows covered the evidence. There were months of agonizing uncertainty to be, insured, to be endured by the family. Jake and his two small sons had no choice but to go through the Valley of Shadows. For Jake, it was a religious odyssey. His account is intense, moving, and because he is a man of faith, he has written a deeply Christian book. And it's highly readable. Plunge in. You'll be delighted you did. That book was written by my dad. It's a book called Valley of Shadows. And this copy came from MCC. So if you're looking where to get it, that's probably your best bet. So I read that book. I've been reviewing it this last few days. And it brought me back to a place and time where it reminded me of some of the most difficult times in my life. And some of the incredible ways God cared for my dad and my brother and myself. Dad wrote this book not to draw attention to himself, but in response to First Corinthians, sorry, 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 and 4, which says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. As part of Dad's commitment to sharing that story, he traveled all across Western Canada, and many times I've run into people when I was in Bible school traveling with different music teams who said, I know your story, I've been praying for you for a long time. He would go and sing a couple of songs. He would share his testimony. And then after he would share his testimony, most often he would gently minister to anyone who just wanted to talk. On one such occasion, some years later, he and my second mom were asked to come and speak at a Christian women's club event in Cranbrook, British Columbia. On the way in, their plane crashed in a snowstorm while trying to avoid a snowplow. And so... As I said, I'm an orphan. It's right there in the Merriam-Webster Dictionary. Orphan, a child deprived by death of one or usually both parents. So I qualify. But the question I want to wrestle with today is, am I really? I suppose humanly speaking, but I have an incredible giving set of adoptive parents. My dad's youngest brother and his wife, who gave my brother and I their absolute best the best that they could do to give us a home and a family to grow up in. But what about in God's eyes? Am I an orphan? Our series is in Ephesians, and I want to look at that and say, ask the question, what does Paul have to say about this in Ephesians? So if you have your Bibles or your electronic devices, whatever you're using nowadays, Ephesians 1, 5, and 6. 
I'd like to read that to you. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. Now, in looking at this passage, probably the first question we should be asking is, what did that mean to the people that Paul originally was writing to? Now, obviously, because I'm not that old and I wasn't there, I need some help from historians. Scottish law professor Francis Lyle, he gives us some helpful insight in his book called Slaves, Citizens, and Sons. He argues that Roman, not Jewish or Greek, adoptive law was at the heart of Paul's teaching. There was no Jewish adoption law, but rather the practice of Leverite marriage. What did that mean? Well, a Jewish man, if he died without male offspring to continue his line, he would, his closest male relative was then commanded to sleep with his widow and produce an heir. Roman law, by contrast, allowed a man to create an heir from outside his family. He continues, The reason for legal adoption was never for the sake of the child. Children could always be fostered, but adoption was meant to preserve the family. Worshipping families were the building blocks of Roman society, and the Roman household needed a male priest at its head to offer prayers and sacrifices to the family gods. It also needed a strong male figurehead to lead the family. So this is in the background when Paul talks about adoption. Commentator William Barclay continues on with this as well. In the ancient world where Roman law prevailed, the family was based on what was now called, and I'm going to try and do say this in Italian. Help me, Dave. Patria potestas. Got that? Say that with me. Patria potestas. Okay, forget it. Literally means the father's power. The law of the Romans gives a father absolute authority over a son, and that for the son's whole life. It gives him authority if he chooses to imprison him, to scourge him, to make him work on his estate as a slave, or even to kill him. Under Roman law, a child could not possess anything, and any inheritance willed to him or any gift given to him became the property of the father. How'd you like to live under that? It did not matter how old the son was or what honors and responsibility he had risen to. He was absolutely in his father's power. Therefore, if the father had no heir family had no heir, or if the father felt his sons were not worthy of such a role upon their father's passing, they would then adopt someone they felt would suit the role better. He goes on to say, this was really serious business, and it had a long, serious legal process. There were two steps. The first was known as, here's another Italian word, mancipatio, and it was carried out by a symbolic sale in which copper and scales were symbolically used. Three times, the symbolism of sale was carried out. Twice then, the father symbolically sold his son, and twice he bought him back. And the third time, he did not buy him back, and thus the patria potestas was held to be broken. After the sale, then followed a ceremony called vindicatio. The adopting father then went to the creator, one of the Roman magistrates, and presented a legal case for the transference of the person to be adopted into his patria potestas. When all this was completed, the adoption was complete and complete indeed. There were four main consequences for the person who was adopted. And I want you to think about this in context of what Paul is trying to say. The adopted person, first of all, lost all rights to his old family and gained all the rights of a fully legitimate son in his new family. 
in the most literal sense and in the most legally binding way, he got a new father. Secondly, it followed then that he became heir to his father's estate. Even if other sons were afterwards born who were real blood relations, it did not affect his rights. He was inalienably a co-heir with them. Thirdly, in law, the old life of the adopted person was completely wiped out. Think about that. For instance, legally, all deaths were cancelled. They were wiped out as though they had never been. The adopted person was regarded as a new person. The adopted person was regarded as a new person entering into a new life with which the past had nothing to do. Finally, in the the eyes of the law, the adopted person was literally and absolutely the son of the new father. This is legal language. Do you see the parallels? As Paul uses this image to describe our standing before God. Secondly, there's another important consideration as we think about the history. I just want to quick, bri- briefly draw to your attention. It was the divide between the Jews and the Gentiles. Now, a general understanding of God's covenantal relationship with Israel makes it very clear that Israel was God's chosen people. In Deuteronomy 7, it says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people than the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to his fathers. So what did that mean for all other nations then? Ephesians 2, which is a little bit further than the passage that we've talked about, but we want to look at it in context of Ephesians. Verse 11 says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. A big part of Paul's message in Ephesus to both Jews and Gentiles is that God had revealed a mystery to him. What was that mystery? As a Jew, Paul, one with a long history as a devout Jew, before Jesus transformed his life, Paul is giving, given the privilege and the responsibility to spread the good news that, because of Jesus, the divide no longer exists between Jews and Gentiles. Verse 19 of chapter 2 of Ephesians. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So, Let's take a straw poll. How many of you are Jewish? One or two of you. For the rest of us, that's pretty good news. Otherwise, we don't get to be in the family. So with that as a backdrop, let me read our passage again. Ephesians 1, 5, 6. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. What is that saying? In short, I'm no longer an orphan. 
And if you are a follower of Jesus, neither are you. How you identify yourself doesn't have to be, I'm an orphan separated from God. But rather, it says here, you are adopted to himself as sons and daughters, children of God. So what is, is the significance? I want to draw your attention to four key things that I've found. First of all, this adoption is not based on good feels. Now, some of you may not have heard the term good feels. My kids sometimes use it around me. So I went to the slang dictionary and it said this, cute puppy dogs, a bad breakup, some really good pizza. These things give us all the feels. The slang term describes an overwhelming emotional reaction, often with a humorous tone in the phrase of all the feels. So when we think of adoption, we tend to have a little bit of a romanticized view. You've seen the movie Despicable Me? Have you seen it? My favorite character in there is Agnes. Does this qualify as annoying? See, it's kind of this picture. God saw us and we had this warm, gushy desire. He had this warm, gushy desire to hug us and to smother us with kisses and he just couldn't help himself. Any of you who have ever hung out with puppies know what I'm talking about. You just want to squeeze them. Is that what this is about? Unfortunately not. It's more like the Lord of the Rings. Think Gollum. Isn't that nice? At first glance, he is absolutely revolting. But if you look long enough and you know the backstory, he is actually somewhat of a sympathetic figure in the story. You see a character captivated by something that led him down a dark and agonizing path that he never would have chosen if he knew he was going to end there. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, talks about us. Talks about those of us, what we once were. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Ah. Gollum. Those that he predestined for adoptions as sons were by nature children of wrath. By nature we were absorbed with self and drawn to sin. By nature we sought to be our own God, the master of our own destiny. By nature we were under the wrath of God. But something allowed God to see past that. The first two words, the last four, the last two words of verse four, in love. Not a sentimental, warm and fuzzy love, but a love that acts. God, through Jesus, loved enough to do whatever it took to welcome us, welcome us into his family. It's a legal action, like the legal demands of the Roman adoption. Remember the copper and the scales, the payment? the trip before the magistrate to present the legal case for adoption. This is why he should be my son, is the picture. C.S. 
See, the Father's law was satisfied by the sacrificial death of Jesus, His Son. Therefore, love was given to us despite our unworthiness. Romans 5, 6, 5 verse 6 to 8 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Therefore, we are no longer orphans. Not because we are good enough or somehow worthy of adoption. We are no longer orphans because His love for us is lavish. And His love responds with action. Secondly, this adoption is not a reaction to unexpected circumstances. Ephesians 1.5 says, In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he blessed us in the beloved. Now you knew I was going to have to go here eventually. You saw the passage, and here comes the challenge. Once again, we're faced with that mysterious tension that lies between God's sovereignty and man's free will. Dave talked about it last week, and I want to do the same in saying, let me encourage you to reference Pastor Tim's sermon from the Both And series, God is Sovereign, I am free. But as we try to struggle to understand this tension, we have to take into consideration scriptures from the same letter that Paul wrote that create this tension. Ephesians 1.13 says, In him you also, when you heard the truth, the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit this little passage would somehow indicate that somehow we have a part to play exercising our will to accept what is offered. Now, I don't even want to try to go too deep here. It's not the purpose of today. But let me share with you a quote that I have found very helpful in, in trying to understand a little bit. From Randy Alcorn's book, Hand in Hand. The God of the Scriptures is so big, wise, and powerful that He can grant truly meaningful and real choices to angels and humans alike in a way that allows them to act freely without their finite limits. For, pardon me, within their finite limits, without inhibiting His sovereign plan in any way. And indeed, using their meaningful choices, even their disobedience, in a significant way to fulfill His sovereign plan. The point here... Our adoption as sons is part of God's plan, decided upon before the foundation of the world. It's not a reaction to an unforeseen event that caught God by surprise. I remember the evening that I heard my parents were killed in the plane crash. My pastor and my grandma and my uncle came to the door, and of course that feeling of just like, ugh, it's devastating. But you know what the first question I had in my mind was? And I don't know if I said it out loud, but I'm pretty sure I must have at some point. Who's going to take care of us? Now, sure, mom and dad had a will, and so they sort of had a plan. But I, and I found out later it maybe wasn't as clear as they had hoped. And, and as an aside, by the way, if you have kids and you have a will, make sure it is dead on clear. Because that brought a lot of confusion. But honestly, I don't think anyone believed for a second that the guardianship contents of that will would ever need to be used. It caught us all completely by surprise. 
See, man's fall in the Garden of Eden wasn't a surprise to God. The need for a solution to man's sin problem, it did not catch him off guard. In the, heat, in the heat of the moment, God didn't have to weigh his options and make a hasty decision. No. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. He knew what was going to happen. He knew how he was going to respond. And guess what else? He knew how much it was going to cost him. Therefore, we are no longer orphans because he wanted you as his child from the beginning of time. Before the beginning of time. Thirdly, this adoption was not done out of duty. On a couple of occasions, we've had people that we know, family members and outside of our family, who have asked us to consider being named as guardians in their will. You know what my immediate response was? Sure. And then as I think back, then I went, okay, wait a minute, I should probably, I should probably rethink this and pray about it and talk to my wife and so on. Why? Because I knew what I put my adoptive parents through. And, I, and wisdom suggested that I should probably make sure that I considered all that I was signing up for before I said yes. In the end, we were honored to be trusted in this way, and we agreed to take on the role if it ever was needed. But if I'm honest, I am not sitting here waiting on pins and needles like it's just about time for Christmas to be the adoptive parents of somebody who, whose parents killed, were killed. Because you know what? I've watched it, and it's a lot of work. And it's painful. And you're walking with grieving people. And it changes your life. If my adoptive parents would hear, they would have hours of stories. And I would look like a schmuck. <laughs> May the Lord bless them. Take a look at Ephesians 1. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Now that, in the ESV, that purpose of this will kind of is a bit misleading. So I want to take us through a few other translations. But the word here is eudokia. It's, it can be translated will, choice, goodwill, kindly intent, benevolence, delight, pleasure, satisfaction, desire. So here's what some of the other translations say. The NIV, in love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. The NASB, in love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ himself according to the kind intention of his will. The New Living Translation. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. Do you ever think of yourself in that way? That God's received delight and pleasure and satisfaction in adopting you into his family? If I'm honest, I kind of feel like I have this picture of God adopting me. He's kind of like, yeah, okay. I know you're really not that, you know, worthy. You're a bit of a bother. And you're going to mess up. But come on in. No! We are no longer orphans, but rather the deep abiding joy of his heart. You're not a bother. 
to God. And that means a lot to me. Because humanly speaking, there's been times when I've felt like a daughter to my, my adoptive parents. And folks, that translates to how we view God. There may be times when you feel like you're a bother to your own parents. And that translates to how we view God. But we are not orphans, but rather the deep abiding joy of His heart. He wants you. It brings Him pleasure. Finally, this is not a second-rate or bare-bones relationship or arrangement. Does anybody know who Lady Tremaine is? Show the picture. She has two ugly daughters and a stepdaughter, Cinderella's mean old stepmom. Don't you want to be her? God is no Lady Tremaine. Ephesians 3.12 says, This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Access. What does it mean? What does it mean to be an adopted son of God? Access. Now, I love it when my kids walk into the office and I watch Dave and I watch Jesse when their kids walk into the office and they're little cute guys, right? They walk in and everything stops. And we all go, ooh, ah. Levi, come here, come talk to me. Nope, it's going to dad. That's access. Now, we all have cell phones, or most of us have cell phones, and here, I'm, I'm, it's confession time. When my phone's in my pocket and it rings, my first thought is, which of my family members needs to get a hold of me? So, no word of a lie, confession time. We were in a lead team meeting. Okay, lead team is the bunch of us that, that meet every week to talk about where the church is headed. And we're in prayer. And I'm praying. And my phone goes off. And mid-sentence, Hi, hon, what do you need? <laughs> so for those of you who are in that meet lead team meeting, I now know why that happened. Because I needed a sermon illustration. They tease me relentlessly. But that's a picture of access at any time. And what does that passage say? This was according to the eternal purpose that he he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with timidity. Right? Can Can I talk to you now, Jesus? Father? Uh uh. Come. Therefore, we are no longer orphans and approach our Father with boldness and confidence because we are welcome in His presence. In fact, I'll take it a bit further. He longs for us to come. So what are we to do? How should we respond? 
I didn't know how else to say it, so I'm just going to say it in this phrase. Surrender my heart. Now, see, I remember when my dad came to us boys after my mom had passed away, after her body had been found, and now dad was starting to think about the future. And he, he told us that he was interested in somebody new. It's a bit fuzzy for me, some of it. But he told us that he wasn't going to ask Marion. Imagine, my first mom was Marianne and my second mom was Marion. He wasn't going to ask her to marry him unless we both agreed. The way Dad tells it, my brother was very open to the idea. Me, not so much. In fact, I can remember a time when they took the, the four of us went out for dinner. Could you imagine me stubborn and pouting? Come on. I sat under the table the whole meal and wouldn't come up. Dad talks about the times when they were starting to date and, and uh, Marion would come to put us to bed and my brother would hug him big time and her, her big time and I would give her the cold fish. So I'll just read from what my dad wrote because it probably comes better from his memory than mine. One morning over breakfast, the boys and I were t- again talking about the possibilities of a new mother. I'll get it. Hang on. <clears throat> Nelson was all about asking Marion. Lyndon still wasn't sure. I said, if you want her, you're going to have to tell her so because I won't ask her to become your mother unless I know that you really want her. Several days later, Marion was upstairs tucking the boys into bed. She said goodnight to Nelson, who hugged her without hesitation. He had done so before. Then came Lyndon's turn. As Marion bent down over him, he lay there and looked up for a while. And then like a flash, both arms just shot up. And he nearly choked her. He loved her so much. The ice had been broken. I remember that day. And I kind of asked myself, what took me so long? Why did I not want to respond to that love? Why did I not want to surrender to somebody who was wanting to reach in? And actually, as it's written in my pen here, because as we were leading in worship this morning, the Lord gave me this thought. Because the cry of an orphan is, please don't leave me again. Can I trust you with my heart? Folks, if you think about all that we've talked about about God in the last few ser- in the rest of the series today what the word says never will i leave you never will i forsake you our responsibility is to say will i surrender will i give up will i throw my arms around god and say i'm coming i'm hanging on and i'm accepting my place as your adopted son or daughter So my question to you today, what keeps you lying in your bed like a cold fish, not wanting to reach out to God?
and to accept that adoption. I'm going to ask the worship team to to come and, and lead us in a song because reality is Ephesians chapter 1 verse 6 at the end of it it says that this, all of this is to the praise of His glorious grace. Not only do we surrender but then as we surrender our lives are all about how can we bring glory to Him? We no longer serve Him because if we don't we're going to get kicked out of the pool. We serve Him as an act of worship as an expression as a way of saying, I accept the love that you gave me freely undeserved. I'm going to ask Trev to lead us in the song, and then I'll come back up and close our time. But as we're singing this song, would you simply ask yourself and ask the Lord, bring it to Him quietly where you are, Lord, what holds me back?